The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 40 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is the great rock drummer, Ray Luzier. Ray has been playing with the legendary hard rock band Korn since 2008. And prior to that, he did some recording and touring with David Lee Roth. He has his own project called KXM, which features George Lynch and Doug Pinnock. He was in the Army of Anyone. He also um, often works with Billy Sheehan, so very active guy. He also taught for a long time at Musicians Institute over in Los Angeles. So this was a great interview. Talk a bit about the making of a new corn record, touring, how he plays with so much power, all of his gear. So let's get to it. Ready to lose ear. Well, first off, uh, where are you? This is your home space. This is my home studio in Franklin, Tennessee. Yeah. So moved nice. here. June will be eight years here, which is nuts because i'm still in a band based in bakersfield california so it's like i'm i always joke with people i have a 2000 mile commute to work as like <laughs> when i when head rejoined a band in 2013 they said i said to him first thing because he lived in out here and i said when are you gonna move back to cali he's like i'll never live in la i'm like how are you gonna be in the band he's like there's airports and internet isn't there <laughs> and just and right at that time, we, we had just had our first kid. It was about two, almost three years into it. And I was thinking to myself, man, because my wife never really got L.A., you know. And, and I was like, man, I wonder if, it was, if we could get out of here. And it was feasible enough. And so I got permission from the band. They're like, you know, John's really adamant about, like, stuff on the, on the cuff. Like, hey, Ray Ray, come up here. Drive up to Baco. I got this idea. And I'll go up and play drums on it and then drive back down. It's a, it was a two-hour commute for me when I lived in LA and so they you know this only happened a few times where I've had to jump on a plane the next day and go out there but for the most part he's right we meet at the airport if we do a European tour we meet at the you know if we do a record we all meet at the Bakersfield I have a four-hour flight that's nothing to me you know yeah I live on airplanes so um so that's what happened you know it was like um, I set up this first thing we did when I got my house uh, out here. My wife was looking at all the other rooms. I'm like, that's awesome. I saw this uh, unfinished room and I said, can I finish this 300 square foot room and try to make it a drum room? And I took the fifth bedroom and uh, soundproofed it for a control room. So I had isolation, you know, engineer wise. Nice. And there was a time where I had four kits in this room. You know, I moved to Nashville, and it's like, I'm just going to be this drum cabana. I'm going to have all my friends over and all the Rich Redmonds and all the Jim Riley, <laughs> all, you know, near Z's. They're all going to come over. We're all going to jam. That's happened like three times in eight years. <laughs> right. It never happens, man. It's like I wanted yeah. to, but so I had to get serious. When the pandemic bullshit hit, I, I got rid of everything, and I really got a lot of great mics and a lot of mic pre's, and I said, I'm going to start recording because one thing they can't stop us from doing is making music, right? You might yeah. stop us from touring and going out playing live and the masses congregating with sporting events and music, but you can't stop us from writing. So the file trading started first with corn, of course. And then it was all those me and Billy Sheehan have a little rhythm section thing we got going on. He lives in Brentwood, Tennessee, not far from me. And he's like, Hey man, Remember those records that we kept saying no because we were busy. He was out of town. I was out of town. We started emailing these people back, and one by one, they're like, "Hey, that's you know, we still need tracks. We still need a rhythm section." So we started playing on people's stuff, and then it just no advertising. It just kind of went from there, you know. And, mm -hmm. and it's been great. I've been, I just finished uh, <laughs> Jagger Bonham's record, which is insane. I'm, I'm playing on John Bonham's grandson's record. <laughs> <laughs> in my little studio in Franklin, Tennessee. It's 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 like Jason calls me one day. He's all, "Hey man, would you be interested in playing on my son's stuff?" And I'm like, "Why aren't you playing on it? You're yeah. Jason Bonham." He goes, "He doesn't want his old man playing on his stuff." So uh, you know, I did that. Uh, Mick Mars solo record that's coming out this year. To so many things, just like you know, fun projects. You know, so that's that's what I've been doing. You know, here. That's great. How is this stuff presented to you? Are you giving like fully formed demos or are you getting sketches? How do you work? Um, well, 
being a teacher for a decade at MI, you'd think I'd, I could read backwards by now. You know, I've taught so many different things. I've subbed for styles that I can't really play that well, <laughs> and uh, and including sight reading classes, which is hilarious to me because I'm not that good of a reader. I'm not. Uh, I can. I can get through stuff. Uh, but almost every time, even when I thought I was Joe Session guy in L.A., which I never really was, I just – I was for a while before I started touring – I just started getting phone calls. Hey, play tambourine on this track. Hey, keep time on this. Hey, do. And I was like, man, I'm actually getting quite a few calls a week. And then it turned into this whole thing. So I was teaching an MI, kind of being a session guy in the valley. And, but every time they'd give me a chart, or back then a CD in the 90s, you know, uh, or in it obviously went into MP3s and whatever. But I'd always say, a perfect example, there's a movie called genetic uh, repo the genetic opera and it's just like rocky horror picture show cult kind of thing never went really big stephen perkins and i and tommy clefettos from sabbath actually played a couple tracks anyway i did the majority of the drums on it and it's this insane score it's like this there's some really long pieces that start off really quick and then it you know it retards into this three eight or three four thing and then it you know goes into like something in seven and you're back in and he's like, here's the chart. And it's funny because I started opening the pages of the chart. And I was like, you got this on CD? And he's like, there's no way you can learn this by tomorrow. I'm like, just can I have the CD, please? You know. And I memorized the whole thing just because I think it's my ear training has been very good since I was a kid. You know, playing in my bedroom in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you know, with my parents, is, you know, driving them nuts, playing to Zeppelin and Kiss and Ozzy and Rush and I think, you know, to learn so many songs that there's things you pick out, you know, and I'd, I'd much rather feel it. I can feel the music more inside me when it's in my head and and I can wrap my head around the piece than I can. If, don't get me wrong. There's some people that can sight read their asses off and I envy them because I could never do that. I remember like Chad Wackerman filling in an MI one time for a complete fusion gig, you know, just out of control stuff. And he sight read the whole thing, you know punches, hits, blah, blah, blah. and I just, that's, I just, that's not my thing, you know, uh, so I've always been like that, if somebody gives me anything, I've always memorized the music, that's just the way it is with me, you know, mm. complex, bonehead, easy, whatever, I ha it has to be in me before that red light goes on, because when that red light goes on, I have to be confident and, you know, really, you know, confident in myself, and I'm not when I read a piece of music. So that's just me. That's a personal thing with me. I love, like I said, I envy people that can read great and do all that. You know. So when you when you're trying to memorize something, do you do you just put it through osmosis, like have it on repeat constantly, or do you count bars? I mean, what is your your process for memorizing? It, it's it's everything. It's at first I try to. I li it's, I'm weird. I listen to it like a real low volume. Like I don't sit there and crank tunes and. It's a thing where it's almost like it's in the background at first mm -hmm. for me. You know, I'll listen to the song, like, perfect example, the, the Jagger Bonham stuff. I, I listened to it loud in my car, and then I was doing a track the next day, and I just I did something else. I, th I don't know if I was in my studio or doing something. And I just kind of have it on in the background, on loop. And then I start familiarizing myself with the, the changes, the parts. And then it uh, it's almost like it's a subliminal thing to me, like in the background, you know, and then when I listen to it again, that part reoccurs in my brain. Like, oh yeah, there was a this went twice here, and this got cut in half. There was the bridge is only four bars instead of eight. Like you know, there's all this stuff starts you know uh, singing in my head. And now if it's complex, there's, there's this there's this album called her name's Bricard, and she's out of London, and her stuff's quite. She's kind of goth rock, and it's. Not real commercial stuff. It's like, I don't know how even how to explain it, but there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of tempo changes and stuff. Stuff like that is more challenging, so I have to listen to it more, you know, kind of thing. So, I mean, I've fallen asleep with, with buds in my ears, you know, listening to a piece before, you know, just because it's... I always think that the when you wake up and when you, right before you go to bed, that's the best time your brain absorbs, you know, mm. uh, or, or you can retain something, you know. Um, everyone, like I said, everyone's different, though, you know. I assume for you at this point, like four bar phrases, eight bar phrases are so ingrained that are you listening more for what what's different from what you expect when you're listening through? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, to, to most of us that have been playing this long, I mean, this is, I've been playing pro for over 30 years and playing for, God, I'm 51 now, so I started when I was six. You know, so it's a long time just to hear that over and over again and listening to a lot of pop and rock that have normal structures and normal, you know, predictable, as they say, phrases where you know they're coming up. You know, you're, if you're playing a Dream Theater song, if you're playing a, you know, a Nison song with with, with Sheehan and uh, Chambers and Naval, it's a whole different thing. But but I love that stuff too. I get off on the, I love the, I've always loved the prog side of things. And back in the day, back in the '90s, I used to play. Um, uh, there's a label called Shrapnel Records, and they used to hire me to do a bunch of those like shredding, you know, Inve Malmsteen kind of type records, and a lot of that stuff. There's no budgets, you know, in that. So you have a few days to memorize everything and you have like a day to do your track. Sometimes you're lucky and you get a rehearsal. That's rare back for those things. It was just like, you know, I remember loading in my drums for the Darren Householder um, record. I did three of his and I remember like literally, you know, the guy's going like, so you're setting up today and we're tracking tomorrow. And then the producer guy comes in and he goes, Oh, we're getting everything today and sounds. And it was just like, huh? So, I listen back to those and I'm, you know, there was no punches. There was no like, oh, hey, let's scoot that kick over that snare. Let's quantize it. None of that. It was real, you know, and I, I listen back and I kind of, I kind of get bummed at some of that stuff. But in another respect, I'm like, you know what? I love the fact that that's real and it's human because we're not perfect. We make mistakes. God knows I make a ton of them. And it's like today's records, everything's so polished and everything everything's so perfect. And it's like, that you had that idea, you know, like your drum ideas, but why does it sound like a freaking robot? Or does it sound so locked up? And I'm guilty of it. There's records that come out of mind where I'm like, I did not play that perfect. Mm. <laughs> you know, but uh, but I get it. It's the way the technology is today. And it's the way the new corn record I'm really proud of because we didn't lock everything. We, we really left it. We didn't leave it bare bones, but we definitely left it sway. And this, the, I wanted my swing and my feel to be in it, you know. Um, and I did that on the last two records with producer Nick Raskelinix too. But it was a little bit more, everything was locked up a little much performance-wise to me. And we don't play that way live, you know. If you, mm. you see a band live and you're like, they're really loose and you listen to a record, it's perfect. And the production is just over the top. I, it bums me out sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so this last record was made. I mean, it's during a pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. Was the process any different because of that, as far as getting your parts together and how you tracked it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like uh, most of the time, it's like, okay, hurry up, we got a tour coming up. We got, you know, we got two weeks here. We got a week here. We have, but we're going to Europe, and then we're going to Japan. This was like, uh, we mean we're not going on tour next month. We mean we're not going on tour next four months. Like. That was really weird for us. So it was, it, and I'm I'm one of the morons that took the flights when you weren't really supposed to take the flights. But I, you know, driving to Bakersfield's a lot harder than that. So you know, Brian and I jumped on planes when it was pretty scary to go on planes. You know, um, mm-hmm. but well, of course we were safe and did our th- what we were supposed to do and to get there. But it was a different, completely different thing showing up this time because it was like. We we own the Buck Owens studio, and I, you, you look too, way too young for that. But mo- some people will know what Hee Haw was. This show, oh yeah. yeah, and it was this very big show back in the day. And Buck Owens' his studios were all the original Roy Rogers, Buck Owens, you know, Merle Haggard, L- Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, all the OG people did their records there. Even downtown Nashville, you'll see signs that say "That Bakersfield Sound." That's our studio. Mm. You know, so it's kind of some. Big country stars out here now found that out and they come up to me like in random spots. But hey, man, like Luke Bryan, for example, he's I respect him. I don't listen to a ton of Luke Bryan, but he he is who he is and he's well loved by so many. He's like, you really own the Buck Owens studio? I'm like, well, I don't. My singer does, but, <laughs> but they trip out because they fanboy out because that's such a legendary place. You know, you listen to those old Merrill Haggard records, those drums, dude, are freaking singing, man. You can hear. The air on his sticks in the 
it just the, the hi hat sounds and it's it's so real. It gives you chills. Like John has all these recordings and we listen to him through the board, and uh, that's like that's the real deal, man. So it's like um, we have now up there. He started fixing up all the old tape machines, so we actually tracked most of Requiem through analog. Of course, it went to Pro Tools, um, but. My drums were done to analog tape, and that was a totally different thing. Like in your, your headphones here, and like it mm. rewinding instead of just like, all right, go, all right, go, go ahead, go ahead. You know, this was like, wait a minute, because like, okay, wait, I'm going to change this part. Go ahead, and they're like, well, hang on a sec, <laughs> <laughs> and you hear the you're like, uh, wait, I'm singing it in my head. Wait, I can't lose it. I can't, and then finally, they, okay, go ahead. You know, it's this weird thing because you're so used to instant the blood, you know, sooner. So. um yeah, that was it. But let alone that process was awesome. Just us getting in a room up there was like, whoa, there's no rush right now. We're not forced to do anything. Mm. We don't even have to. We can write right now and we don't have to keep any of these songs. And that's a huge, you know, uh, luxury to have in our situation because a lot of times, Corn's a band that never really stopped. We're taking some time off. This is my 15th year. And those guys. They haven't stopped in 27 years. I mean, there's, of course, there's breaks and things here and there, but this was like, would write a few, six or seven riffs, and John would come over and go, hey, this is cool. That's not that great. I said, let's take a couple weeks break and come back. And we would do that. We would take a couple weeks, come back, and listen to them again, because it's, it's awesome to hear them with fresh ears and go, man, that's really cool, and that's not as cool as we thought, but this is great. What if we put this with it? And then next thing you know, we're like, the collection of songs got a little bit stronger, you know? So we we must attract, you know, 16, 17 songs for Requiem, and only nine made it because we just were like, in our opinions, this, these are the best right right now for the, this moment in time, you know, and uh, and that's a cool thing, you know. There's some that didn't make it where I was really shocked because <laughs> there's some there's some burners on there. I was like, what do you mean when that one's not gonna make it? But when you listen to the whole thing as a as a package, it, it's like, okay, okay, I get it now, you know. Um, but yeah, it was a t- and, and we were all there. John's usually the last one there, or he'll skip a couple days, come down later, and hear some of the, you know, see what makes him tick, you know, um, melodically and uh, lyrically. And this time he'd be like, I'd be there an hour, and he'd pop the door open and be like, Hey, Ray, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you doing here? Like, this, <laughs> you know, and he's a good drummer. It's weird. Like he doesn't play anymore, but he has. The kit backstage and he messes up around with my drums all the time he was a drummer first and foremost so he like he has these like linear patterns he comes up with and i'm like what are you doing he's like i don't know i'm just this is in my head and i'm playing and uh he would sit down and what's cool about this band now there's zero ego or attitude at all i mean there's like he's like hey man i got this idea but just do what you're doing i'm like no no tell me what what do you what do you hear and i hand him the sticks and he plays this pattern I'm like that's a totally cool where he put the snare or where the ghost note might have and it changes my vision of how he's hearing it and next thing you know I'm altering what what I played sometimes and it's really a, a cool fun thing it's not like hey man I'm the drummer I got this you, you just sing you know there's a lot of bands that are like that I love the when they give me ideas and it's cool to bounce things off of each other you know so um and I think we're at a point now in our careers where we're super appreciative to still be doing this all these years later, you know, because when I got the gig in 07, I remember Fieldy going, yeah, we got like another year left in us. So, and I'm like, all right, man, well, hey, I'm here. <laughs> Let's do this, you know, and then every year, another tour cycle, another record. Here's another. And it's just like, you just never know, man. There's no crystal ball, you know? Yeah. So did any of your, your parts, like, is everything written as a group or do you take stuff home and then work it out more i mean how does it kind of evolve to the final take out there is is like you know i'm out of a hotel room so it's like me and head are well head stays in his parents sometimes they live out there but um i will take the so you know i will take a really rough demo of what we did today i'll ask the engineer to hey man can you bounce me send me an mp3 of that and sometimes i'll sit in my hotel room and go I've done something like that before, or that group doesn't really work with that guitar pattern. And I'll think about stuff mentally. And then when I go back in the next day, I'm usually the first one there, and I'll mess around on the kit a little bit with parts or whatever. 
Chris Collier this time, man, this engineer buddy of mine, he did the three KXM records that I did with my side band with George Lynch and Doug Pinnock. And I met him back in 13, and he's such a phenomenal musician, man. He can play anything on drums, guitar, bass. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Like, you know, he'll come over to my kit and go, I'll say something about, uh, we're going to write some Meshuggah today. And he'll sit down and play Bleed on my drums. And he hasn't picked a stick up in like two months. And you're like, and he'll pick up a guitar and he'll start doing this like string skipping thing. And you're and you're going, why? He's just one of those freaks that's really good at it. And then when he gets behind the board and engineers, he's phenomenal on that. He's got great ears, you know. So working with him this time, I love working with people like him. That that you want, that's the best thing about a, a great producer is you want them to push you in a way that does make you better and doesn't frustrate you. There's some producers I've worked with in the past where you're like, they they try too hard and they push too hard to try to get stuff out of you that only annoys you and frustrates you you know mm. and uh, i had a little problem with ross robinson on the corn three record at first we got along through the process but at first he was i felt like a beginner drummer with him because he was just just killing me with everything like you know that's this to this it's to that do this do it if i look too comfortable on something and put your left in over here i'm like well i never why would i put my left in over here with the and you'd but he came up with these cool grooves, like that song Oildale. I never would have come up with that groove if it wasn't for Ross Robinson. Starting the with the downbeat on the floor, Tom, and the kicks are all in the ups. That's something I would have never played before. So I love that aspect of it. But there's also a way, you know, Chris has a way of like, hey, man, you, you've done that in some other songs. How about like, you know, those cool stack things you have over here? Why don't you throw one over your hi-hat? And I was like. That's kind of cool. What would I do with that? He's like, I don't know, mess around with something. And that's Start the Healing. Our, our first single has that pattern where I'm on the hat and the next bar goes to the stacks. The next bar goes to the hat and the gong drum in between the kick. And that's like something, instead of a straight eighth hi-hat groove or, you know, 16th thing, that's really cool. And that's what I wanted about this record to make it kind of special. It's, it, in my opinion, Requiem to me is more of the right what i do than it is a producer going ah that's a little too busy don't do that you know and i love nick rascalinix he's phenomenal but he had a way of like yeah it's a little busy hey you could do this phil but let's not do that what chris is like that's awesome but do something different here instead of that and, and he's he's gets hyped off on what i'm doing and doesn't really slam anything i'm doing and i love that about him and because he'll be like Let's let's simplify the kick pattern because it's a little busy, but do more up here on that stack symbol between the high. And that's like, whoa, that's kind of cool. I never really approached that, you know, and it makes it funkier and groovier, in my opinion. So I did that quite a bit on this record and, and uh, I'm, I'm happy with it. You know, Does the um, is there a kit that just lives there for you in Bakersfield? Yeah, there's 13 there. OK, <laughs> yeah. So, so what uh what I have made nine the record? Here, <laughs> nine here and uh literally it, yeah I, I mean it's yeah i mean you, you can see me but i you know there's there's oh, uh, yeah. snares and kits and just i have stuff stacked and just i mean and there's full five full kits in my in my uh <laughs> control room so yeah i'm not sure sure no shortage of gear so like i said there's a big storage area there so i have my old orange county drums and D drums before I was endorsed with Pearl um, from back in my David Lee Roth and Army of Anyone days. I still have the Army of Anyone kit, that acrylic Orange County sitting there. And I have a Ludwig kit from uh, from Slaughter, the band Slaughter Blossom Elias. I bought mm -hmm. it off in the 90s because I needed drums. And back then I really loved that Ludwig sound and uh, I still do. But um, there's a Rogers kit there. There's, there's a Gretsch kit there. Jonathan has two Brady kits there. And of course, I have a, so many pearls. Uh, but yeah, it's it's like a it's like a drum shop, literally. If you walk into the drum section of it, because there's a my tech has a workshop that he does. He put together my new kit for this this new tour we're doing now, and it, he literally had a because because we got all the lugs and rims custom powder coated. He got everything unassembled, so it literally was like drum shells and all the materials. So it took him like three days to build this kit. It was insane. I'm gonna do a post about it soon because it's just incredible what he did. Um, what did you ask me before? Sorry. Yeah. How, what made the kit? I mean, what made the record? What kit made the record? Oh, so, uh, yeah. So we try a lot of different things and it's like, 
I have this this um, John had his Brady kit up, and we we tracked one song with his because that thing. I don't know if you know how much you know about Brady's, but they're pretty phenomenal drums. And mm-hmm. he actually purchased two years ago. Like I got the gig in '08. He got the get, uh, or he bought this kit right before that. And dude, it it's one of those kits where like the heads can be old. You can, it can be in a closet or it can be in a warehouse, and it just sings. It's one of those drum kits. It's like it's probably one of the best kits I've ever heard in my life. And I'm not just saying that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. literally being around this world and doing drum festivals all over the planet and hearing every brand out there. You know, it's one of those kits. You know, so we started with that, and then it was like. I need to use Pearl because I'm a Pearl endorser, you know, kind of thing. So there's a little slight fluctuation you hear on the record, but the MCC kit they made me, Pearl has an amazing factory here now in Nashville, and they manufacture these Music City custom kits. They're reference shells, but to me, they have a little bit more love in them because there's only one dude assembling them. It's not this assembly line in in japan or you know mm-hmm. uh and which is not a bad thing you're not getting a bad kit just because it's mass assembled but there's something i don't know man i have this this is a music city custom and i use this on the mcmars solo record and so many new stuff that i've done coming up and it's the same thing you put a head on it it just sings there's something about it i just i love them um i don't know why they they claim that those are exactly the same thing but i Beg to differ, man, because I have three <laughs> of those kits. So the black one I used on the Jonathan Davis solo tour, Black Labyrinth, in 18 is the one on the record. So that I have different dr- size drums. I have a 22, 20, and a 24 kick, and then a plethora of drums to choose from. You know, I usually go 10, 13 mounted, and it's 16, 18, and then with a 22 when I track. I used a 24 on this record, though. Um, mm. Yeah. And it just, I love the air it was pushing and... Chris, I remember saying, <laughs> Chris is like, you know, let's let's use a punchier kick, which is the 22, obviously. But that 24, something about the oomph of it that we loved and, you know, um, yeah. What was the, the main snare? Was there multiple? The main one was the, the brass, or I'm sorry, phosphorus bronze free floater, uh, pearl. Mm-hmm. That was the main one. And I use that live, too. A lot of people say, like, man, what's your snare live? Because... They like it, and uh, I kept going back and forth with, between wood and that that phosphorus bronze. But there's something about the crack and attack on that thing. I have it in here. I had Pearl give me three of them just because I knew um, my engineer that works with me here, Nash. I, I had a, I have so many snare drums here, as you saw, probably you know at least twenty to choose from when I do a session, and um, they're multiple brands. Most of them are Pearl, but uh, he's he's like. What's that one you used that you sh- he saw me play with Corn last year in summer? And uh, I said, this is, I don't know if it's going to be good in the studio. And it it won. So it was like, that's my main snare I use. And some some clients really want a wood sound, you know. And so I do put up, I have a, a, so many, the reference, I have a 32-ply reference I just used the other day. And it sounded amazing. You wouldn't think it'd be that bitey in, in a studio situation, but it really delivered, you know. Um but that one always wins, man. It's funny because I'll mm. I'll try to trade stuff up and, and change it out. And uh, even though Brian Fraser Moore made a snare drum and Pearl sent it to me, it's phenomenal. Like that thing cracks so good. But that that one always won, you know. So, uh, do you change your tuning or head selection live versus the studio? I'd like to like right now. I put. Um, I went back to Clear Emperors. On I've always been a Remo guy. Uh, nothing against any other head company. I just I've only used Remo since I was ten, so I don't know any mm-hmm. other head. I just know it's weird when I sit down on someone's kit that has Evans or Aquarians or Attack or whatever. I'm just a Remo. I've been a Remo guy forever, and um, I've always used Emperors because I don't hit light. You know, uh, even in the studio, I kind of lay into it. I'm not hitting near as hard as I do with Corn, but I I lay into them pretty good. You know, so. Ambassadors don't work good for me because they pit too, mm. too soon. And every once in a while, if an engineer re- requests it and it's not a basher kind of song, I'll definitely put ambassadors on. But it's always Emperor. I go between clear and, and uh, coated. So most of the time, the studio use coated just because it's a little bit warmer. But uh, live, almost 99% of the time, I'm using clear Emperors. 
And on that last tour, we tried those color ones and uh, I don't hear the difference. My engineer out front, the front of house guy heard it, said it's a hair a bit darker, but I don't know, you know, so this year we went back to the clears again. And I always use a, um, a um, power stroke three, yeah, PS3 on the, on the kick. And I use a um, Emperor X on the snare just because it's mm. got extra plies. And, and if I get, it's funny because every, every, you know, I'm 51 now, every year that goes by, I'm like, man, I got to hit, I got to start hitting lighter. You know, I'm not 25 anymore. And it's, the music comes over you and it takes you, the curtain drops and you hear the crowd and the music we play is not exactly love balance. So it's, you, you just lay into it. I hate when I go see a heavy band and the drummer has that waiting for a bus look, you know, or, or that yeah. just, come on, give me a show, give, get into it. So I have to have something on my snare that gets me through a show. And that Emperor X never fails, man. I've used, I've used that since they started making them. And I've tried everything. You know, CS3s are my, my studio snare. That's my favorite because uh, it has a better tone. But MPEX's uh, live are just, just the way to go, you know. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. How long does one last for you? Well, I ch my tech changes them every. He likes to change the snare every every show, and then he leaves the toms on maybe two or three shows, depending on where they pit. But uh, in my opinion, we could go three or four shows with that same snare. Sometimes it breaks in kind of nice after the first one, you know. Mm -hmm. um, front of house guy likes a nice. He likes that crispness to it uh, of a fresh head, which. But in here, like I'm on these. I put these uh, clears on probably three sessions ago, and they're still they sound better now than they did when I put them on. So there's a they break in, you know, different for every drum. But these ones are sounding great in here now. What is your your tuning approach? Do you do like bottom head higher or lower? A little bit. Even? Yeah, I do bottom head a little bit higher, and I'm not one of those like I have a lot of like you know I'm a DW uh, pedal and hardware endorser. But I don't uh, endorse the drums. I know a lot of my friends are really into that note thing. They really tune it like the note says on the drum. I just, I'm not real picky about that. I love big intervals. I hate when drums are too close to each other. I hate when the drums are, I hate that like, ooh, kind of thing. It's got to be ding, doom, boom, doom. It's got to be a big interval. So that's why I think I, even on my live in studio, I have 1013 up front, 1618. Uh, uh, just, because, just because you can make them, you don't have to force it to be that tone, you know. Um, I went 12, 13 for a while, even 10, 12 for many years. But there's a, that's, that three-inch space between the two front racks, I always loved that, you know. And then uh, I did a session the other day. I had this, the Octobon 6 up. They don't, Pearl doesn't call them Octobons. What do they call them? Rocket Toms. <laughs> I keep going <laughs> old school on the Tama thing, the, the Rocket Toms. Um, and then an uh, eight inch, eight by eight, and then the ten third. That was a great interval spread. It was like big uh, Nico McBrain kind of fills going on, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I just I'm not real picky about that. My tech, he likes to tune lower than I like it a lot of times. I'm always, to, you know, or like three songs into the show, if Jonathan starts talking, I'll grab a key and start hitting the ten higher. He's like, what are you doing, man? You're, it sounds great. I'm like, yeah. yeah. It's just a, it's a weird thing. It's a, it's a fidget thing, you know, because um, they sound great in my ears, but I'm always like, there's not enough separation between those, you know, those drums or whatever. But kicks are pretty punchy. I don't, a lot of people like their kick head barely on. I have to feel that batter come because I leave my beater in, which isn't the best technique in the world, but I've done that my whole life and it's just the way I play. Um, it's weird when I get asked in the session, Especially in Nashville, there's a lot of different techniques out here. It's way different than LA. They'll let they'll ask you to pull pull the beater out of the head, 
and it takes a lot of concentration for me to do that because I'm a uh, hard hitter. So, um, but I always have. It's got to be a little bit of slap back coming from the kick, so it's not that tight, you know. Um, but yeah, what do you put inside? I have um, one of those pearl. They make them for kick drums. They have like a I don't know what they're called exactly, but it's it's for you know the kick kick drum muffling. So it's got the little foam foam up top, a little train mm. to go through, and then foam in the back. And right now on that twenty two, I barely have the last one touching the outer head. It just touches the front um, because that PS3 with a with a file and a slam head uh, that pad that you put on there, it's it's done for me. You know, um, every once in a while, the engineer will want a super super tight kick and don't want to hear anything and they'll baffle it and that's fine too. You know, it depends on what you're doing or whatever. But uh, but I have a Kelly shoe in there and my gong drum mm -hmm. too, so it suspends the mic in there. You know. Do you dampen the snare, or does that head give you enough? That um, I do dampen the snare. I have a, uh, I have this new endorsement with um, they're called Sky Gel Damper Pads. They actually made me my signature brand um, of these. Have you ever heard of them before? They're a German German company, and I started using them on um, the Alice in Chains tour we did. <laughs> And, you know, I was using moon gels to whatever, just to get rid of that little overtone. A lot of people like them ringing, but a band like Korn, when the guitars are so tuned down and everything's so rumbly low, you can't have a lot of low-end rumble in the drums. It, it mm. bites too much with what's going on frequency-wise. So this company, I did the Manchester, UK drum show, and it's like a mini NAM show for drummers. You know, they, they stop you and say, hey, Try this, try this. Well, this one guy, he stopped me and he goes, and, and you know, I want to bother you, but just here, here's some of these sky gel things, try them out. And I said, okay, whatever. And I, I tried them out that night and I was like, man, the control was really great. I love the way they stick on the drums. And we established a relationship and he sent me a box of stuff and we got so into it that he's like, well, let's make you a signature, you know, sky gel pad. I'm like, wow, that's really strange. I've never, that's one thing I've never been asked to do. You know? <laughs> so uh, he goes, what's your favorite color? And I'm like, I don't know, reds, blacks, chromes. And, and he goes, uh, I go, I go, how about wine red? Cause I'm a, I drink red wine. And he goes, wow, that'd be awesome to do. So that's my color on these. It's uh, oh, cool. Yeah. So um, they're starting to get them in stores here. They're, you can get them in Europe anywhere, but they're starting to get them here. But that's what I use on there. Depending on the situation or how much I want in the ring, you know, they come in different sizes, which are which is great. You know, I have to ask you about your setup. I think I saw you back in the OCDP days at a Pasic, and you were playing very flat. Yeah, but it was a different. But your the setup wasn't this extreme. You didn't have the China way to hell up there. Like, when did it get to all this? You had the ride yeah. symbol angling away from you a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I you know I don't know, man. It's like I've always had that marching core approach. You know, like you know, I played triplets, I played quints, I played everything in marching band. So I had that kind of thing always in my brain, and of course the snare drum and. uh I never really stopped there because I look back at old photos of my drums and they were had the, I had the, the Lars Erwin thing going on back mm -hmm. in the day. And uh, I don't know why everything, I sit really high and weird. Uh, my buddy Josh Devine, he plays for One Direction and a bunch of bands. He came over here the other day and he sat on my kit and he's like, I feel like I'm standing up. And I'm like, I know, I sit weird. And if you're a shorter guy, it really bums you out if you jump on, you know. And this is better than my live kit. Live kit, I don't know what happened, man. It's like, I have to feel in control of the drums. A lot of people feel in control when they sit down. You sit on Scott Travis from Judas Priest kits. Like he's a buddy of mine. I feel like I'm sitting on telephone books. My knees are in the air and I'm like, I, I have no control over that. His drums are way up here. And I'm, I, I have to be like down on my stuff for some reason. You'd think I'd play a lot lower than I do, but I don't know why I started angling everything back. I think I started with the ride cymbal years ago because all my cymbals are always flat. But then I started ang angling the cymbals away from me. And I remember my old tech about seven, eight years ago going, I go, hey, man, flatten this stuff out. He goes, it is flat. I go, well, push it back one notch. <laughs> then it's leaning towards the audience. I'm like, I don't care. Just put so I don't know why, man. It's a weird thing. You know, it's like you look at those jazz drummers, how they angle the snare, you know, because it's easier to play like that. The ride's way easier. Like if it's flat now, it, it feels like it's leaning towards me and I don't like it. So it's like a, it's a weird thing. 
but even the studio, like in my studio, you know, have they're not perfectly flat because I, I want them to be a little bit more relaxed, you know, uh, in right here. The real estate on my kit now, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like it started with because I look back at my first photos with corn and I used the same army of anyone setup I did with David Lee Roth. I, it's kind of flowed into that. I had two up, two down. Uh, but I play, I've always played right and left hand. It's uh, the ambidextrous thing. So it feels weird for me to have two floors on the right. I've never done that in my life. It's, it's a weird thing for me. I always had one over here or, or even a 13 or something over there. And there was, this, I went through a period of my playing where I had a ride high hat, ride high hat, like a mirror thing, the Mangini thing for a minute, mm -hmm. but it just didn't feel right after a while. But I, I don't know what happened. I think John sat down one day and he's like, you should get one of those gong drums back here, those big things. I'm like, yeah, I never used one of those. That'd be kind of cool. Next thing you know, I'm smacking one of those. And he should, he should get some of those like spiral symbols. Like, I'm like, what? And then this guy, Nassim Haram, he, he's this uh, raving guy that he tech for Adele for many, many years. And he built Jonathan a lowrider rack one day. And he was at the studio. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, Jonathan wants a... A rack. I'm like, that's really cool. He goes, let me make you one. I'm like, dude, I'll use stands till the day I die. I hate racks with a passion. <laughs> He's like, no, man. I'll do, I, I go, it's too permanent. I'm a fidgeter. I like to grab a symbol and move it. I like to move this guy to move it. He goes, just, I go, he kept bugging me. And I go, hey, man, all right, then make me this china up here, but I want nothing here. Just make me something up here. And he come up with that giant diamond thing you see in the first rendition of the rack. And I was like, it still felt weird. It took me a long, it took me that whole because <laughs> I still was like, went to grab a symbol and it was too permanent. And I was like, ah, I was fighting the whole thing. But he's like, find out where you like the stuff and it lives there. I'm like, what if I don't want it to live there? You know? So that's why I think it went back and forth. And then it just evolved through the years. You know, my friend, uh, Sean in, in Florida, Mr. Sawblade had maybe that crazy China stand that the creepy tree thing you see. He welded mm -hmm. that. Um, and I, and I just love the racks that DW make, and uh, I love the curve. It has to be weird. I don't like anything that's too normal on the kit, you know. Um, so I think that's not way to evolve to what it is today. Now I got two kick drums joining each other because last tour I took out two 24 by 24s, and this one, it was going to take too long to get me a custom kick. So I go, screw it. Let's just get one 24 by 16 and one 24 by 14. And that'll be like a giant sub kick for the, you know, and that's that's what I have today. Um, it's a it's a reference kit. It's an MCC, but it's uh, the chrome wrap with uh, custom lugs. You know. Do you ever miss the china? It's so damn high. Do you ever strike out on it? <laughs> when I'm tired. When I'm tired. Yes. There's been shows like where, especially on this US kit, because when we put them, when we have like rental kits overseas. I can adjust it much easier than the permanent of the of the rack. But yeah, when I'm tired, man, there's been days where I've I've almost hit Jonathan because he's like <laughs> in front of me, and I've gone like this, and the stick went flying down. I was like, oh god, I almost hit the boss, you know? <laughs> yeah, yep. So you're, it you're stands. Gonna like, you see me like two years from now, you're like, well, Ray lowered everything. The China's gonna be down here flat. <laughs> it's gonna be right in front of me. Nah, it's gonna go higher. You're <laughs> <laughs> gonna throw a stick and hit it from now on. And give me some advice on how to play with high volume and power, but being so relaxed and fluid like Lou are, like you do. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it looks like I'm annihilating everything when I'm playing with corn, and I'm actually super relaxed. I remember Joe Picard was one of my favorite teachers at MI in 88 when I was 18. He's like, look at you, kid. You got all this energy in you. You're grabbing your stick so hard, you look like you're gonna kill somebody. He's looking, look at your tension in your hands, and I'm like, that's how I. But I want aggressive. I want to. He goes, you don't. The aggression doesn't come from here. Like this, you're not the grip. He's the one that put his arms around me and go, look at this. Just look at this. Look, here's the fulcrum. You see this fulcrum? You're gonna get the whip out. Of it. And he showed me the molar technique. And he, mm. between him and Ralph Humphrey, that was like my saving grace. I owe probably my longevity of my career right now. I don't think I'd be playing right now to be honest like as the way I can if it wasn't for those guys because they started me at a really young age like you're you're stupid <laughs> stop it mm. you're gonna you're gonna have to carpal tunnel when you're 23 you know and uh and I still use that to this day it 
if you would feel the grip I have on my sticks, I'm barely holding them. Barely. It's like you know, and my, the butt end of my stick is midway in my palm right here. It's not, I don't hold sticks mo like most drummers do. And it's just this weird thing that I developed and I can get a lot of power from that whip motion of the molar technique. And that helps me stay relaxed, you know, when I'm up, when I'm up there on deck. I mean, like I said, I, I hate watching like, I mean, which everyone's different, unique. That's you do what you do. But it's like when I go see a heavy band and I see a drummer back there, like waiting for the bus, I, I, it drives me mental. Like, give me some emotion. Show me what is that what you're feeling? Because if that's what you're feeling, that kind of sucks to me. I want to, mm. you know what I'm saying? Like, I want to, I want the energy. You go to a live show for a live show. You know, David Lee Roth always taught me, like, he's like, they're paying money to see you too. They don't, you know, they're not just me. It's the band thing, it's a group effort. And, um, he always told me, he's like, what would you want to see? If you were in that 10th row right there and you looked up on stage and you saw that drummer, what would you want to see? And I'm like, whoa, I never thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's where the kind of showman in me comes out of, of being a little bit more animated. I try not to be too hammy. There's a lot of drummers over the top out there, which is great, whatever you're into. But I just want the audience to feel what I'm feeling in the music. And if I can get that across, then that's what I'm trying to do. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a show off thing. Like, Oh, okay, you know, the whole little flips and twirls they do or whatever. That's from the old marching core days, you know, that I just kind of incorporated here and there, you know? Um, yeah. So where does the power come from? If it's not coming from your muscles, like <laughs> if I'm playing hard, I feel like I have to work hard. Like, how do, yeah, what's I the mean, well, I mean, there's definitely an inertia in, in a, a strength and a power that comes from your limbs, of course. But I think it doesn't, I'm not so tense up top. You know what I mean? It's not mm. like, uh, you know, if you see someone with a, ha with a hammer, they're getting a hammer and they're punching, they're pushing as hard as they can. It's a, it's a more of a uh, fluidy attack, I think, you know, that I get from that, from that whip crack, you know. And even on my feet, I play heels up and I play so hard into my kicks. Um, it's like a... But even on my legs, it's like I think my legs work a lot harder than my hands do just because obviously they're a bigger size too. But it's like a lot of those super fast thrash drummers, I, I look, I'm like, wow, they're playing a 30 second notes at 200 BPMs and but the feet are barely moving because they have this control and that's awesome. I don't have that kind of control, especially when I sit high and weird like that. I'm kind of, you know, I remember sitting on Chester Thompson's kit years ago. And he sits higher than I do. I actually mm. met someone who sits high because he just I like kind of leans that. back. <laughs> and like, and so, but everyone's different. I mean, that's that's what makes everyone so unique. And I always use that thing of like, if you get ten drummers in a room and you all play the same exact kit, if you all play back and black or something super straight ahead, you're going to sound ten different ways just from the what comes out of you, the stick size you're using, how hard you're hitting the snare, where you're hitting it. Where the you know your groove relies in what you portray, but also how the instrument sounds when you play it. So there's so many different you know things. That's why I, what I what I used to teach people. They're like, how come I can't get this? I can't. And you see this one dude really hitting really hard, and this little tiny sounds coming out of the drum, but it looks like he's killing it. And you're like, how can that be? There's you know it's just your method and your technique and what you know what you've what you've learned. And I'm not saying I have any the best technique out there, but I definitely have evolved into something in the last couple of decades where it's me and it's like, I, I know where I'm at with it, you know, and, and it's, uh, talk to Tommy Aldridge about <laughs> name dropping all these drummers. I know as I'm going, not, not, I'm not intentional, but I, I played with Tommy Aldridge at this festival one time and he's much older than I am. He's in this, I don't know what's 60 something. And, uh, he still hits the same as he did back in mm. Pat Travers and white snake. And I'm just like, I was almost like, I, I kind of felt like, oh man, he's so frail looking. Look at, yeah, I don't know, how's this clinic going to be? You know, I wasn't doubting him, but I was, I was like, Jesus, he's not that young anymore. He annihilated the entire festival because he just, and he started playing with his hands. I'm like, stop it. But he was, you know, so obviously he had something that he developed many decades ago that, you know, and, and that, that always sucks for me when I hear someone has a hand problem and they have something going on. That sucks because it's, mm. you know, uh, you never wish that upon anyone, especially for someone like myself, where this is all we do for a living, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. 
I'm not that good of a cook, so this drumming <laughs> thing doesn't work out. Uh, you don't want me coming over fixing your uh, toilet. That's for dang sure. <laughs> and with a band like Corn, I mean, it's high energy from the downbeat. Yeah. How do you um, not blow yourself out in the first or second song? Yeah, I mean, it's well, the stamina stuff. Definitely, like now, you know, we have a video shoot coming up before this big tour starts. We have a twenty show run coming up, arena tour on the fourth, and I have to, I'm starting. I have to start weeks before. Like it's mm. I have to cut down on the Ben and Jerry's, and I, and I'm a sweet fanatic, so it's like physically I have to be there. You know, we're not like Metallica or Genar that play three hours, but our ninety minutes is a pretty abusive ninety minutes. You know, it's like mm-hmm. um, sometimes it goes over and and. Uh, and sometimes Jonathan will give me the, hey, baby, take one. And he'll walk off stage. And take one what? Oh, crap, the lights are <laughs> on. I got to do an improv solo. And that's that's a whole other thing because you're you're not playing for drummers. You're playing to entertain ten to 15,000 people. You know, that there's yeah. there's maybe 20 drummers in all those people that are like, oh, I know that second, that 30-second triplet he did. No one cares. They're, you know, they're having a good time. So you got to turn on that entertainment aspect with like evolving your technique into it so i have to start now like i'm starting now i, I played through some of the, i played through some of the new requiem stuff uh today and i'll start playing some of my favorite stuff improvising doing some of my warm-ups just i just get my stuff moving more like towards because i gotta get another headspace when i'm on tour than i do in a studio in a studio i hit a pad and i'm warmed up i had 10 minutes on a pad i'm like okay let's go because i'm not I'm more focused and I'm more, it's a more contrived setting. Live, it's just like that curtain drops, man. It's on. Like, I can be tired. I can be jet lagged. We can be in Japan with a 16 hour time change. And guess what? Those people don't care in the crowd. They could care less if you're jet lagged or you're tired that day or, oh, there's no excuses. Make it happen. So it, it takes, you know, the first few shows of the tour, like we just did those stadium shows in LA with System of a Down. And we did two arena shows before that. We played at a church for the release of Requiem. So it was a weird plethora of shows out there. We just did this a uh, couple weeks ago. And that stadium gig was like, you look out and you're like, this is sold out right now. There's 35,000 people here. And and that on that day, the night before, sometimes like my brain doesn't shut off. I, I'll start thinking about something. I can't stop thinking about it. And... Uh, I didn't sleep that well in that first stadium show. And I was going backstage and I remember hitting the pad going, man, snap out of it. You idiot snap. out!" Mm. Cause those people don't care, you know? Uh, so I don't know what it, you know, it's like an athlete, you know, you're not going to run a 10 K and not train for it. You're not going to, you know what I'm saying? So, and if you don't, it's your own fault. You know, I have, I have some metal drummer friends that like, they don't care. They just like, ah, I'll get warmed up first couple shows. And I'm not that guy. I got to, I got to get in the zone. I got to get, you know, I'll walk more than I usually do. You know, uh, there's, you know, if there's something up the street, I can take a, I usually take a car. I'll walk to it instead. You know, kind of that kind of just constantly moving to get me ready for the step. That's another thing. Metal drummer starts out guns of Blair and, and you see him sinking by the end of the last song. He's hanging on for dear life. That's always not good either. So you have to train yourself to, you know, have that kind of stamina, I guess. Do you have any like daily habits that you need to do when you're on the road, like hydrating or stretching or meditating yeah. or? Absolutely, you got to. Stre- I have a stretch regimen. It's not a big ordeal, but I definitely have a pattern of like, you know, ten to thirty minutes on a pad, stretching everything I possibly can. You know, I lay down uh, in the backstage rooms and I start just about an hour before we hit the deck. You know, um, I hydrate all day i try to uh drink water and, and a gatorade or so and this it's funny because we were joking the last tour was like you know you're getting older when the first few tours were like jack daniels tons of beer and what now it's like there's a juice machine like a giant plethora of vegetables to put in the juice machine there's like two bottles of red wine that's my rider i i, I drink a glass maybe two a night and that's my big wow you know but it's times are changing, so we definitely have a. a it's funny because the guests will come over, and they're like, we sometimes we'll have a six pack or two of beer just for a guest, 
and they'll be like, this is all you guys got? I'm like, well, that's for you because we don't even drink that. So, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah, you have to kind of, but I have some superhero friends, man, that they, uh, uh, Vinnie Paul, rest his soul. I mean, he, I, I would play with that guy. Hell yeah, I would go on. He'd be eating a burger in his hand and playing a video game with his other hand. I'm like, Vinnie, 10 minutes. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd go out and annihilate. You know, he's he's one of those freaks that could do that kind of stuff. I'm not that guy, you know. Uh, so, you know, so it, everyone's different, you know. Yeah. Well, mentally, is it is it your time on the pad when you get centered and focused? Yeah, it, it's definitely a mental thing. I don't like people around me. I don't like to – every once in a while you get a guest that comes early and they want to chit-chat, and I'm always like, hey, man, I'm not trying to be rude, but I got to do my thing, you know. I don't come to your banking job and, and talk to you right before you start working. You know, it's like because people really don't think it's it's a great job we have, but it's still our job. You know what I mean? It's like people always they're like, you're just this is fun. You're just having. Well, yeah, we're having a ton of fun, but there's a process that goes into it. And a lot of them don't understand it. And I, it's not like I'm a prick to them, but I, I do. I'm pretty firm when it comes to showtime. I'm like, hey, man, I'll talk to you. After, I'll see you after the show. Let's you know, I'm going to do my thing. And. Uh, yeah, it's it, a lot of it's mental for me, a ton of it, more than I think, m- more mental than physical. You know, mm-hmm. uh, for me to really get in that zone of like, um, because there's an adrenaline rush that comes over you. I don't get as nervous as I used to, but the adrenaline is hard to control sometimes. Because when that curtain drops and you're in a high intensity band, it's uh, it's another animal. You know what I mean? Like David Lee Roth was a different kind of adrenaline, and, and he's more of a fun in the sun like I couldn't I don't know how to explain it on stage you know but we're doing Van Halen songs and you know we're playing Hopper Teacher and Jump with California Girls and Gigolo and Just Like Paradise and all those songs so it was a different kind of energy and exertion with Corn, the intensity of it people that pay money to come see us that's part of it like that whole inertia that adrenaline that you feed off the audience. They feed off of you. It's it's a whole trade thing. You can never get that on YouTube. You can never get that on a DVD or whatever. So you, we're one of those bands. We will never cheat the, the, the crowd. You know what I mean? Like we, they come to see us. We're going to bring it, you know, with whatever we got. You know, there's been times, like I said, jet lag or, or no sleep or whatever. We, we bring it, you know. Last question. What was your first snare drum? <clears throat> first snare drum? Yep. Interesting. That was my uncle, Emil, E-M-I-L, Emil, Emilio. Uh, before I even got a drum set, I, he played marching band. He was the only one in my family I knew was in music. No one in my family is in the music, which is really weird. And uh, I started hitting cassette cases and like whatever. I would like hit different parts of them. The palm would be the kick drum. The, the tip of my fingers would be the snare and I'd mimic the cymbals. And I was hitting all this stuff. And he's like, man, you... You know, I'm not barely using that snare drum I have at my house. I'm, I'm going to give it to Raymond. They call me Raymond. And uh, he brought that thing over. It was a Slayerland 5x14 uh, uh, metal, uh, steel, steel drum. And, dude, that thing, like, I just I almost cried because I'm like, what are you giving this to me for? Because it's like, I barely use it. So then my parents, right after that, I got a CB700 kit for my birthday, for my sixth birthday. So that was my first, like, kind of real drum kit. And the snare was kind of crap that came with it. So I put that slinging it on there with this kit and it was like game over nice because i had uh camber symbols and i think my uncle gave me this old zildjian beat up like 16 inch ride it was a really small ride symbol it was really strange and that's what that's what got me going you know and uh and it just went from there i never i never stopped you know um, nice yeah do you still have that drum or is it long gone man i'm so bummed that i sold i got rid of that kit to a neighbor in West Newton, Pennsylvania, which is 45 minutes out of Pittsburgh. And I should have never, I wish somebody would have told me, don't sell your first drum set. Cause I, cause I don't mm. know what, I'm sure he got rid of it and somebody else probably got rid of it and who knows where it's at now. It might be <laughs> someone's addict in Pittsburgh, you know, but uh, you know, it's like you, that Ludwig kit even that I bought from Bloss meant something to me because, you know, I, I used to, watch those videos and I have that kit that's in the fly fly the angels and up all night video and it's but I sold half of that but I kept half of it because it's a big old kit and uh you don't realize back then like that it's going to mean sentimental something you know Mm -hmm. you know what it's like you you have friends that are 
they're super into music, but then they're accountants and they play on the weekends and that's fine. Whatever. You got to do what you got to do. But I knew I was going to be a lifer back probably when I had that kit, when I was 10, 12, I knew that I was, I was going to be doing this big band, little band, rich, poor, whatever. I'm going to be doing this somehow, you know, but you never think like I should have held on to that first kit. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's story of all of our lives. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, you thank you. You What's that, Mike? Nope. I sold yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the first one, yeah, I sold them both. Yep. I had, I had a Black Hawk from the Sears catalog. That was my first kit. Nice. Nice. That I sold. Then I had a, a nice Pro Export. Sold nice. that. Went out to yep. college. <laughs> had an Acrolyte, early 80s Acrolyte that I broke Whoa. a lug and just threw it in the trash. I thought it was garbage. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Ray. If you do like the show, please head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and drop some words into the review. That helps spread the word and gets the show into the ears of more drummers around the world. Until next time, go practice. And I'll see you then.